Welcome to the YGA podcast, where we explore the areas of natural science, exploration, and conservation. I am your host, Harmil, alongside Harmon, and in today's very first episode, we welcome Dr. Elizabeth Weber, the COO of Trunks and Leaves and an elephant researcher. She joins us today to explain her academic journey of carrying out her master's and PhD, as well as how Trunks and Leaves facilitates conservation efforts. So welcome, Dr. Elizabeth Weber, to our very first episode. Hi, thanks for having me. This is my first podcast as well. I've been doing teaching and all sorts online, but my first, yeah, podcast. Great fun. Awesome. So before we get started, can you tell us a bit about your background and perhaps some of the roles you're currently involved in? Yeah, sure. So I'm, uh, I've just started a role as a chief operating officer with Trunks and Leaves, which is an American-based charity focusing on Asian elephant conservation. So um, kind of evidence-based conservation, but looking at elephant habitats and the people who live around the elephants as well as just the elephants. Um, and my background is uh, I've done internships at, uh, at zoos. Uh, I've gone on to be a research assistant for African elephants. I did my master's um, on Asian elephant crop raiding in Cambodia. Um, yeah, a whole, a whole host and then also some sort of UK native animals. Um, but, but yeah, elephants has always been where my passion has led me. Um, and I don't know, I, I grew up in north of um, North Scotland. So the idea of working with elephants was always a bit of a crazy idea, but somehow it's, um, it's fitted together. Yeah. Yeah. So you have this extensive research background working with the giants and your first of many elephant research end of war started with your masters on elephant cooperating hotspots in Cambodia. Later, your focus turned to African elephants as a research assistant with the Amboseli Elephant Project, where you investigated data and the longitudinal effects of early experiences on elephant life histories. So even before heading into your PhD, you thoroughly scrutinized elephant behavior from essentially two different continents. What really inspired you to focus your research on elephants in the first place? Uh, so I can't even remember a, a turning point in my life, but I can always remember being fascinated by elephants. There just was always an awe of them. Um, but when I was 16, I picked up a book um, uh, by a researcher called Katie Payne. And it was called Silent Thunder. And so she'd studied the infrasound that elephants used. So low frequency rumbles that um, we as humans can't hear. And we'd almost feel it like a big organ if you were in a, a big cathedral sort of place. Um, and elephants use these low frequency rumbles to communicate over kilometers. So say 10 kilometers, they can, they can call to each other and kind of keep up, up to date with whatever each other's are doing and coordinate their, their space. And this just blew my mind at 16. Um, yeah, so I think that's where I was started my my initial, huh, is this possible? Can I work with these huge, huge creatures on the other side of the world? Um, yeah, but they they that book had me hooked, absolutely. Yeah, I've actually heard of Katie Payne. She's worked in the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, I believe in the bioacoustics program. And I think it's very interesting that bioacoustics across disciplinary science can help us garner such a better understanding in sound transmission and reception. And I feel like this is just one of like the many fields which kind of show how we have so much to learn and just appreciate from animals. And many of the applications derive wouldn't be possible if it weren't so if we weren't so fortunate to really 
be able to work and admire such animals like the birds and whales for the bioacoustics research. Yeah, she does a lot of, um, she uh, got into whale communication before she got into elephant communication. Um, and I remember going to university, uh, so in, in Scotland, the system works differently. So I went at 17 and was asking all these questions and, and some of the zoology departments were saying, what is bioacoustics? I was like, no, 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 that's what I'm asking you to teach me. <laughs> um, whereas now, yeah, 20 odd years later, it's now, I'm sure there's even degrees on it specifically. It's fantastic how it evolves, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the introduction of these fields and subdisciplines are now being integrated into degrees like you mentioned. But it wasn't that long ago when many of these areas of research were just in their infancy. So with like this ever-changing scope of research into the academic level and so many more students entering the field of research, what factors do you think are of important consideration when a student is deciding to pursue research work on wild animals? So I kind of feel like mm, to get into the world of elephants, elephant, well, elephants, animals, animal behavior, animal conservation, uh, my husband jokes that I don't value money and I see where it comes from. I've been a student and gaining work experience so often. It's not, it's not like your banker friends, you're in a completely different world. So it has to be your passion and your patience that drives you. Um, there are going to be some periods in that, in that developing your career where luck lines things up and you make your own luck um you, you find the networks um and and there'll be peri periods where you just have to stick it out with the grit um so my uh yeah so my my husband now husband uh used to gate crash some of our um research conferences so in scotland we have the scottish primate research group and we have a winter meeting around a, a weekend and it, it fell on one of it fell on my 30th birthday so we tagged along one year then worked out how awesome it was and always wanted to tag along in, in later years. But he was talking to uh, Professor Alex Weiss, who does um, primate personality. And just as so my husband was new to people who were interested in animals like you guys, um, and just didn't understand how I could just sit and watch and be fascinated by something, even if it was a dead creature, just that fascination. Um, and Alex had said something about, yeah, just um, like he got this um, love for just watching animals and learning their behavior um, and seeing what you can tease out of, out of that experience of watching. And so um, James came back to me and was like, oh, I get you now. Okay, <laughs> that's why you, you watch them. You just have that, um, that drive and motivation to stay still and take in as much as you can. Um, yeah, so I think it's passion and patience um, for the field, the field of elephant, elephant and animal behavior yeah thank you and yeah on the topic of passion actually i recently came across some work by eo wilson and the biophilia hypothesis and i firmly believe that we as humans have this tendency an innate tendency to connect ourselves with nature in general so i believe developing this passion level for life is not really hard at all rather it's kind of the exposure or experiences needed to kind of understand how immersive you can get with these natural experiences and how they can really help us in loving and caring for the planet. So yeah, going back to your point, yeah, passion is an important aspect in the scope. And for your PhD, actually, you ventured off to Udavali National Park in the summer of scorching hot Sri Lanka to compare the physical and behavioral development of elephant calves, both in the wild and captivity. 
So can you perhaps go over how you devised your PhD topic and how you really ended up in sunny Sri Lanka? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I guess uh, how we devised the project goes back before my master's and back before my uh, work with Ambaselli. Um, I did an internship at Chester Zoo. A lot of the zoos do it at the moment. Um, if you're a zoology student or looking in to get into zookeeping. Um, and there was a baby elephant uh, that was due to be born uh, when we were interns. Um, and yeah, so um, when Roman arrived, we did this behavioral study on him. Um, and that was with the other intern, uh, Rich Fraser, who's now the head keeper at Chester Zoo in England. Um, and so that was several years before uh, my, uh, my boss from my research assistant role was like, come on, Lizzie, what do you want to do a PhD on? Um, and my mum made a joke about, well, you enjoy watching baby elephants. So this kind of snowball into, well, how do you watch baby elephants and uh, do something worthwhile from it? Um, so we wanted to compare um, captive versus wild and to see there's some there's some problems with captivity at the moment with uh, the big ethical question of should we keep elephants in captivity? Are animals in captivity that are um, that are they're being such great ambassadors for their wild animals and raising funds and, and teaching and education and advocacy, should they be in captivity? So the other big problem that we have in captivity is we have a disease called elephant endotheliotropic herpes virus. So a herpes virus um, that tends to kill calves and Asian calves more than African um, around two years old, just roughly around two years old. Um, and this disease was was pretty much wiping out um, UK Asian UK born Asian elephants. So we had this twofold problem of welfare and this herpes virus. And so we wanted to ask the question: If you managed to have a calf that survived past two years and went on to to live and reproduce in the zoos, is it behaving normally compared to one in the wild? So does it have the same connections with its mother? Um, does it play? Does it is it is it standing around or is it is it doing stuff? Um, yes, we really wanted to peel back uh, captive versus wild. Um, and then we thought we'd do Asian and African as well, because the end number is so low in captivity in the UK to observe them. Um, so I've got about, I think it's about nine Asian uh, captive calves, nine Asian wild, and then a hundred of Asian wilds and a hundred Asian uh, African wild. Oh, letters are all confused all over the place. Um, yeah, so we just wanted to see what the difference was in them. And um, yeah, although it sounds really cute studying baby elephants, because you've got this herpes issue underlying it. Um, yeah, it can be quite a, a dark pub conversation um, because because the number of my baby elephants that were keeling over from this herpes virus was um, was pretty heartbreaking, really. Um, but there's great news that there's uh, new research being done on finding a vaccine for this herpes virus and uh, I know of two calves that have survived the, the virus in the past few years, so um, it's looking great. But again, that opens up the question of, so if this research has been going on in captivity um, to come up with a vaccination, that vaccination can be used on wild elephants if that was ever a big issue in the wild. But ethically, should you keep them in captivity for that? Um, yeah. So since in this kind of topic, you worked with both wild and captive elephants. From my understanding, a captive setting is more enclosed in the sense that the elephants are limited to a more contained environment, whereas wild is just wild and they have the whole field to explore and just live. 
So how did you find the transition in recording and data collecting among the two types of settings? Uh, good question. The, the first thing that pops into your mind is uh, the temperature, because it wasn't just captive versus wild, like both in Sri Lanka, it was captive in the UK. Um, so while uh, captive animals have to um, deal with the stress of UK environments, so it was mainly, it was I think it was down to minus five degrees Celsius um, one winter. And the elephants aren't outside for long in that period, but they do need to be let out um, so that they can clean up the indoor enclosure. Um, and on the flip side, um, my brain switches off at 34 degrees Celsius um, in Sri Lanka. So, um, and we were recording data up to, I don't know, 37 degrees Celsius. Um, so the elephants have to deal with that stresses, the different stresses as well. Obviously, they're more designed for the warmer climates um, and more designed than I am. Um, and also, the, uh, yeah, the, the, the biggest difference actually between captive and wild in terms of data collection is in captivity, like you were saying that they're in an enclosed space. You know that it's going to be the same eight elephants at the start of your day as it is at the end of your day. <laughs> so you just have to learn those eight elephants and they tend not to be related in captivity. We're, we're getting, uh, zoos are getting better at keeping related individuals. Um, but historically, we just have four adult females that were just pulled in from even from different countries. So they look really different. Whereas in the wild, they're all related. They're all aunties and sisters. And um, so you you have to tune yourself a bit tighter um, to learn the differences. Um, a field staff, they, um, I just remember them being at utter giggles because I was trying to identify, um, all I needed to know was who this baby elephant was for 10 minutes so I could focus on it, not lose it in a crowd of elephants um, and record the data. And then I could come back and I could find the information from the demography database. So this was in the wild in Sri Lanka. And I'd learned that the mother elephant had got a smear of mud down, down one side of its face. And the, the trained research staff who, who were learning all the elephant ID codes by memory were just in hysterics. They were like, Lizzie, that's not, it won't have mud on its face next time you see it. <laughs> it's like, I don't need to know it next week. You guys do. But I just needed to know it for that piece of information um, so I could look back at the data later. Um, yeah, so so much easier in captivity because you don't have to sex them, you don't have to identify them. And also you can be watching one baby elephant and it can disappear into a sea of legs in, in the wild, behind a few bushes, all the rest of it. And then be watching it again and go, hold on, I don't I don't remember you being quite so skinny and realizing that you'd, you'd switched your calf. Um, so that doesn't, isn't so easy in captivity. Um, so yeah, I got, as the years went on, I got wiser at it, um, but also uh, the vegetation um, grew a lot in Sri Lanka. So um, the Udawalawe National Park is an old teak plantation. Um, so the when it became a national park, the teak had been cut down fairly recently. But over the years, the vegetation was coming back. So the secondary growth of vegetation, which meant it was growing taller than the baby elephants were. So although my, my savviness was going up, <laughs> Um, visibility went down over the years, um, but it was kind of just a, a good, a good challenge. Um, one other thing is because I went in the dry seasons um, when there's obviously less rainfall, and um, the elephants would come out of the forests to go to the reservoir um, to drink in the evenings, um, and that's when you'd get your visibility to see what their behaviours were doing for those um, those daylight hours. But if it was raining in those dry seasons, um, then the elephants wouldn't necessarily come out of the forest because 
there'd be puddles within the forest. They didn't have to travel so far to get to the reservoir. So you miss those opportunities. There weren't so many elephants around. Um, and I think as the sort of three summers that I did the studying, I don't know if it was global warming or just fluke, it felt like it got a lot wetter as the, as the field years went on. Well, speaking of all this, like your intriguing and extensive background in researching, whether it's your working with Dr. Sherman De Silva and her field team in Sri Lanka during your PhD, or whether it was pouring over elephant crop rating trends in Cambodia with Fauna and Flora International. It's clear that you've crossed paths, paths with many brilliant women in science research, education, and advocacy. So in addition to being a woman in STEM yourself, what message would you like to give young women to encourage them to pursue a career in this field? Um, do you know what? I've absolutely lucked out in my science career that all my influencers have been female. My, uh, my bosses, my teams. Um, yeah, and I, and I feel like that's not necessarily the case in other animal fields. But with mm -hmm. elephants, it definitely feels like I've got a lot of secure matriarchs around. Um, and I think having that network around is really important. So, oh, how do you find your network? Once, once you've found one of those connections, keep them, keep those networks going strong. Um, and I've always found that it's, um, it's who you know, not what you know. So I, um, I found out when I was doing my master's that I'm dyslexic. I always feel a little bit behind my classmates and my cohort, um, but something still always clicks with me. And I think it's the keeping the, the people around you that um, placing the puzzle together of who knows what um, and what might be going on. Um, I think Professor Phyllis Lee um, took me on as her role and she she would just describe me as being persistent as well. That I would uh, I would email her every sort of six months to be like, hey, what's going on? And uh, at one point she just happened to need a research assistant. So um, yeah, whether that's luck or pushiness um, or just keeping those networks alive. So um, yeah, absolutely. And do you feel like there is that discrepancy between there being like a majority male um, versus female in the field of like animal research because when we do like um our humans of nature blogs i've noticed yeah. that we have like a majority female researchers so do you feel like there is that like cutthroat sense where there's mainly males there and it's harder for females to advance in this field i think it depends so when i'm thinking of my elephant stuff i don't because i think I feel like everybody in the elephant world is really supportive. Mm -hmm. um, and I can think there's, there's plenty of guys in that in their, those fields as well as the females. Um, but I know exactly what you're, you're getting at. Um, and I think when I think of my roles in maybe academia or um, at universities, um, I know it's tough being a woman in STEM, mm -hmm. but I also feel like I've lucked out in my particular field I might have just been supported in the right way right. and therefore I'm keen to continue to support it but just yeah the conferences and things I've been at you yeah you hear things you learn stories you you see how your friends are getting on um yeah that's an interesting question do you guys um interview just as many women as men uh we've had about 15 blogs and out of those only four are males Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's yeah. more female. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking, um, so I, I teach, uh, 
yeah, I, I teach a wildlife conservation uh, course at university. Mm-hmm. And yeah, my de- my class is definitely more female than male. Interesting. So interesting point of view that I, I feel like we don't really um, acknowledge without actually speaking to someone who's gone through that. Yeah. So um, going back, to, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's funny how you can not notice it in your own world as well until you mm-hmm. realize that someone else has the freedom. Yeah. You're like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, going back to your um, work with trunks and leaves and being the chief operating officer, can you talk a bit about the work being done by this organization and how you got involved in this role? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess my field work, my PhD field work on the wild elephants in Udawalawe National Park. So this was working with the Udawalawe Elephant Research Pro- Pro- Project, which um, Dr. Sherman had. Um, created after she did her PhD in Udawalawe National Park. Um, so I was working with um, Dr. Sherman De Silva and her field team, um, and we stayed in touch ever since. So I guess that goes back to the networking um, question earlier. Um, and while I was doing my PhD work there, um, around about, I think it was 2012, Sherman was creating Trunks and Leaves as a charity um, to help Asian elephants. Um, And Trunks and Leaves' mission is to facilitate evidence-based conservation of Asian elephants and their habitats. Um, And we do this through science, education, uh, policy and advocacy. So for me, it's been absolutely great because I've known known the team, I've known the background of their work, I know their passion that drives them. Um, And even the demography database, like one of the little tasks I've got to do later this year to update that, is the same elephants I did my PhD on. Um, So it all kind of ties together. Um, but having said that, that all sounds as though it's like, oh, jump from job to job. I probably applied for well over 40 jobs after completing my PhD, um, had a baby, had a pandemic to survive like everyone else. Um, and I had a serious hiking injury where I, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know how you describe that one, really messed myself up. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, things, I guess things in elephant behavior careers and all the rest of it don't don't line up particularly there's some waiting there's some there's some grit waiting for your career to piece together um and i think that was that goes back to the you were asking the advice to give um up and coming researchers in the world is yeah a bit of a lot of perseverance is needed um just for those those struggly times where things don't seem to be coming together but keep at it um keep at it yeah and going back to like your network and actually being directly involved with uh, elephant researchers, um, yeah. what could people like the general public or myself even do to support the efforts of Trunks and Leaves and help them fulfill their mission's objective? Ah, absolutely. So uh, we've got a website that you could check out that's got lots of um, uh, pieces of information to learn about Asian elephants and the plight of Asian elephants. So I think people generally got confused between the Asian and the African elephants, and they think that they've got the same same threats and the same um, red list um, levels, but actually Asian elephants are more threatened by habitat um, fragmentation and loss. Um, So yeah, check out our website for um, things like that, and also check out our social media. So as well as it being World Elephant Day, it's also Asian Elephant Awareness Month um, and we're posting lots of things on social media um, just to kind of get the world word out there about Asian elephants. So um, follow us on some of our social media um, places and 
It's also, um, yeah, so sharing our social media would be fantastic. Um, we've also got things like um, adopting an elephant. So if you're thinking in a few months time, the holiday season coming up, um, adopting um, a wild Asian elephant, obviously you wouldn't want one in your own back garden, but these are um, virtual kits that you can pin print at home. Um, and also we're always looking for volunteers. So if you've got a speciality, whether that is creating social media, um, check out our website and see how you can get involved um, with helping us out. That would be awesome. Well, Dr. Weber, thank you so much for taking your time out of your day to be a part of our first ever podcast. Thank um, you. Just before wrapping up, I know you touched a bit on this already, but we'd like to give you the chance to promote any project or organization you're a part of or you would like our audience to look out for. Anything that you missed or didn't talk about yet? So, yeah, I'm a fellow of uh, two um, two groups in the UK, which although your, your audience aren't necessarily UK-based at all, um, we'll have YouTube channels. And I think that links back to your question about um, networking and how do you find out what's out there? So um, I think finding out, doing enough work experience so you find out what you don't want to do in your career is just as important as finding out what you do want. Um, and I've been encouraging my students to, to look broadly, figure out if it's bioacoustics you want to do or um, if it's programming or all sorts. There's just a whole world out there related to animal behavior. Um, so this is the um, Linnaean Society of London and then the Zoological Society of London. Um, and I'll give you guys the links for the show notes. Um, but yeah, they do, um, I guess, in COVID times, they've started putting all their little conferences online. Um, and that's just been absolutely great for anybody who's not London based, who can check them out. And um, yeah, keep your curiosity going with them. All right. Well, thank you so much. And well, that's a wrap on our first podcast.